Hi, and welcome to the final episode in our special series of Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Robinson Meyer, a journalism fellow at Epic and a reporter at The Atlantic. In this roadmap series, I'm talking with University of Chicago scholars about evidence-based actions that the U.S. can take to confront climate change. This set of policy recommendations are from Epic's new book, The U.S. Energy and Climate Roadmap. You'll be hard-pressed to find a climate agenda that doesn't include policies to encourage energy efficiency. It just makes sense. Reducing energy consumption while lowering household electricity bills and greenhouse gas emissions at the same time is like a win for everyone, right? But while the concept of doing more with less energy is appealing... Research is piling up that these policies often don't deliver as much as promised and can be expensive ways to reduce carbon emissions. This, as the Senate's infrastructure bill, provides a historic investment into one of the central landmark energy efficiency programs from the federal government, the Weatherization Assistance Program, which is also the same program that researchers have pointed to as historically really underachieving the goals that it's promised. Today, I'm talking with Harris Public Policy Assistant Professor Fiona Berlick about this line of research and the ways that policymakers can improve the programs for the future. So I think I would start by saying, uh, Fiona, I mean, in the chapter you describe, uh, it, it sounds like the results of like almost a literature on on energy efficiency. Um, but what has your research found about energy efficiency programs uh, in in the broadest sense. You know, obviously they're extremely attractive to folks, but and to policymakers especially. But um, should they should they be seen as as attractive as they are? I guess where we should start. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So, you know, as you mentioned, right? Like the reason that energy efficiency programs are so attractive to policymakers is that they potentially deliver what we think about as sort of a win-win solution, right? So the first win is when a household replaces their old inefficient air conditioning unit with a fancy new Energy Star one, um, they're going to be able to cool their house uh, to the same temperature for less using less electricity. The first win there is that lowers their own electricity bill, so that's good for the household. And the second win is that, you know, in general, around the world, um, the production of electricity is associated with fossil fuels and other bad stuff. And so reducing the amount of electricity we're consuming is generally a good. So that's a second win. Um, the big question, though, is whether these energy efficiency upgrades are actually delivering on their promises. So are you getting as many kilowatt hour savings um, as you expect to get when you install one of these new units? And so research that I've done in the setting of K through 12 schools in California, as well as uh, work by many of my colleagues um, in looking at energy efficiency programs um, across the U.S., including the flagship weatherization assistance program, as well as um, energy efficiency retrofits in Mexico and other places, tends to find um, a bit of a depressing reality check, which is that um, the energy efficiency programs aren't living up to the promises that they've made. So for every kilowatt hour of promised energy savings, we're seeing substantially less than that actually uh, being realized in the households or schools. So what that means is that um, while these energy efficiency programs sound great on the surface, it turns out that you're saving less energy than you might have thought um, when one of these new appliances goes into your house. So then when we're doing our cost benefit calculation, uh, if 
the real savings are much less than what was expected up front, um, which of those two numbers, the real number or the upfront guess, really matters for those cost benefits. And we've seen a lot of situations in which the cost benefit calculation uh, turns negative when you actually put in that real world number. Was that the case in the California schools? Because I think that's the natural next question, right? Yeah. So the California schools case is a bit tricky. The cost numbers are hard to come by. Um, so what we do know there is that in order for an energy efficiency upgrade to be uh, approved or part of the possible menu in California, it needs to have what's called a savings to investment ratio of over one. So you can think about that as kind of a cost benefit threshold. Um, what we find is that the realized savings are between 60 and 70 percent of the projected upfront savings. So what that means is that um, if you had an energy efficiency measure that was supposed to deliver a savings to investment ratio of three or five, you're still good. But for the ones that just barely pass this cost benefit threshold, those are no longer going to pass that standard. And why are these programs like failing to meet the the goals? Is it because the technologies, you know, the potential for, of the technologies is kind of um, uh, trumped up? Is like the technologies are described as working as better than they actually do? Or is it like a Jevons paradox situation? Um, why do we not realize the gains we, we think we're going to realize? So I think there's a couple of sort of relatively universal lessons from this set of studies. One is that the engineering models that um, again, help decide which households are eligible and what measures should be undergone in those households are just across the board pretty up over-optimistic about what's going to happen. It's just generally hard to estimate what savings should be or predict that sort of upfront. Um, Partly that's an engineering challenge, right? If you want to know uh, how much energy a new air conditioning unit is going to use when you put it into a home, you also need to know a lot of information about that house, like A, how often are the people home and how often are they going to use that air conditioning unit? But also like, do they have carpeting? Do they have curtains? Are the um, windows facing the sun most of the day, et cetera, right? I guess the other thing that you're seeing um, come out of a few of these studies is there are certainly cases where there's clear mismatches between um, the understanding of how people use their appliances on the ground uh, and how the kind of uh, expectations were set. So one of the examples here is from Mexico. Um, households uh, were given like these really fancy energy efficient windows that were supposed to kind of help insulate the households. But what ended up happening is everyone just opened their windows all the time. And so those upgrades ended up being totally ineffective, right? So understanding how people actually use their appliances is a key part of, of getting this right. So we just don't uh, see very often energy efficiency programs getting updated based on real world data that comes from what we observe uh, when these upgrades are installed in new uh, households and firms. Lastly, in terms of kind of the incentives, um, you know, in some sense, actually what we should be doing is investing the most in energy efficiency in the places that have the dirtiest electricity grids, right? And what we've done so far is actually kind of the opposite of that. There's a ton of money at the state level in energy efficiency in California where there's no coal. And so sort of the uh, local and global emissions, both climate and particulates, are actually fairly low. Um, I see. Whereas uh, elsewhere in the country, you can think about kind of, um, you know, West Virginia, for example, has a relatively dirty grid, um, but sort of limited resources going towards energy efficiency. So there's probably some mismatches happening there as well on the state and local level. So how 
might we avoid this problem? Yeah, totally. So I think one thing that's really important here is that not every energy efficiency upgrade is created equal, right? Uh, suppose that we install a yeah. hundred different types of what are called energy efficiency measures in different houses. Some of those are going to work really well, and some of those are going to work not as well. And so the challenge comes into figuring out which of those are good and directing money towards the pieces of those the pieces of those programs that are effective. Another part of that puzzle is there's actually going to be a matching problem between what household needs what upgrades. Um, and, you know, you can imagine the same house putting in two different upgrades. One is a really good fit for that house. One is a really poor fit for that house. And so what we need to do is kind of use existing data that's been generated by, you know, a long history of energy efficiency upgrade programs to try and figure out what's actually working and what's actually not working. And that's going to allow us to then direct investment in the future towards more effective energy efficiency upgrade programs. So that's one thing is leverage historical data. Of course, uh, over time, we're also going to invent new technology, right? We're going to make their, the new air conditioning unit that much better. And so we also need to do some work to think about a way to incorporate this like forward looking idea. One um, a potential option for that is basically running pilot programs. So when I come up with a new technology, just like when uh, a new um, you know, piece of heart medication is being developed by the pharmaceutical companies, the first thing that those uh, pharmaceutical companies need to do in order for that drug to enter circulation is to do a pilot study to show that A, this thing works, and B, it doesn't have really bad side effects. They typically do that with a randomized controlled trial. And so you could imagine actually doing a really similar thing with energy efficiency upgrades. Before something enters widespread circulation and goes into tens or hundreds of thousands of households, try it out in a couple of hundred house houses in a randomized way and actually see what works and what doesn't. And that might uh, cause a little bit of additional costs up front, but potentially saves us a lot of money down the line. Just quickly to your point about about the workforce, yeah, I think that's a that's a really important point as well. Um, and uh, I have some colleagues at the University of Illinois who've done a lot of work thinking about the contractor side of these energy efficiency upgrade programs. Mm. Um, and it looks like uh, if you uh, there's that there's also a range of contractor skill, right? So just like there are some good upgrades and some less good upgrades, there are some really pro contractors that get all of the bang for their buck out of an energy efficiency upgrade. There are also some that sort of do a less good job and maybe that's they leave some um, ducts unsealed or don't fully fill an area with insulation or whatever it is. And so doing some work to identify the high performing contractors and make sure they stay in as part of the energy efficiency program and kind of incentivize them accordingly, pay them well, and then also find those less uh, good, less effectively performing contractors and providing them with additional training so that they actually are making sure that the um, installation of the energy efficiency upgrade isn't holding it back is an important piece here as well. Has anyone done those kind of randomized control trials that you describe? Is there a mechanism even within the government to do them? Yeah, so I haven't seen that um, for these type of energy efficiency programs. But like I said, you know, we do mandate this kind of piloting in other parts of the government, right? So the medical trial example yeah. is, is the key one. Um, and I think we are increasingly seeing sort of lots of programs across different areas of state and federal government um, 
introducing some kind of ex post evaluation requirement. The trick just becomes in, you know, there are, as with anything, like multiple levels of quality of those ex post evaluations. So step one is like doing the evaluation as well as possible. And then step two is making sure that those data get back to the relevant place. Um, and the thing that's nice about the RCT uh, is it just takes away a lot of the potential concerns that you might have around evaluation. It's very straightforward. We're going to compare a household that gets new insulation to a household that doesn't. Everything else is the same between those two households. And so I can really attribute any difference in energy consumption to that insulation itself and not to any other factors like maybe the houses that get insulation are older in general than the ones that don't, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really interesting. Um, what can you tell me a little bit about the weatherization assistance program? Um, it it seems like in this bipartisan bill, uh, the the bipartisan infrastructure bill, you know, its budget is going to be increased by three point five billion dollars. Um, how much does just like how does the program work, and like how does it approach or not approach your ideal? energy efficiency policy, you know, measure. Yeah. So this is a sort of a huge, important flagship program in the U.S. (laughs) Um, And, you know, as a result, it's been the subject of a variety of different studies by many colleagues of mine. Um, And, you know, the historical evaluations of the WAP have not looked amazing, to be completely honest. So, um, you know, this is one of the key examples where it's really looked like, um, Both the savings were less than uh, expected. So what you actually get out of the energy efficiency upgrades was fewer savings than you had expected up front. And that that really turns the dial on the cost benefit from being something that was projected to be overwhelmingly positive to be projected to be overwhelmingly negative. So that's the bad news on the kind of historical implementations of the WAP. The good news is that it looks like there's been some progress made and there's potential for actually improving the WAP substantially. So uh, my colleague Erica Myers at the University of Illinois has been doing some really cool new work um, trying to find ways to kind of optimize within the existing WAP program. So what they've been finding is kind of two things. One is that a large share of the um, difference between the expected energy savings and the realized energy savings from the WAP has to do with just the models that are being used to pick which energy efficiency upgrades go into which house are just being really overly optimistic um, about those choices. And part of the reason for that is that they have historically not used uh, prior data on a household's energy consumption. If you had that information, and it turns out all of us are generating those data constantly, right? If you have an electricity meter in your house, which we basically all do, there's data that's coming out of that that could be used to better inform um, which upgrades go into which homes. So we have data that we're sort of leaving on the table and could really pretty easily be incorporated into the WAP to improve the household um, upgrade match. So that's one piece. And then uh, the second piece is, um, again, within the WAP, there's some evidence that kind of picking out the best contractors and retraining some of the worst contractors could really help improve the overall effectiveness of the program. So while there's been some historical evaluations that don't look so great, I think there's opportunities here for optimism by bringing in some new um, or bringing in some actual data that's sort of already sitting around to better guide upgrades uh, and and pick which homes should be upgraded in the first place. 
do we are there when we talk about contractors who like service the, these programs are we talking about uh relatively small business owners um or excuse me are there at this point like companies international companies that exist to to implement uh you know the WAP or other kind of energy efficiency measures yeah, that's a great question. I think it's sort of a mix. Like you can imagine this is a, uh, there's a lot of homes that are getting retrofitted under the web. And so it's pretty easy yeah. to think that sort of larger companies would start to spring up to do that. What I do know is that during the ARA period, there were a lot of additional contractors brought in because there was just a ton of more money being poured into the web in a pretty short amount right. of time. And so you had to add like tons of people at once. And so I think one potential concern with the large scope increase of the infrastructure bill is if that funding is actually dispersed too quickly, you might end up with this challenge of like, we're bringing a lot of contractors into the workforce. That's good. But we also need to make sure that they're sort of properly trained to um, execute this type of work, which is a little different than kind of normal contractor stuff that you might see in a different setting. That feels like something that I've heard other people mention, like in the transit context, where the fact that we're doing, I mean, the fact that Congress seems to be doing an infrastructure bill separate from a recovery bill is a real improvement on how, compared to the uh, what happened after the last recession, it basically in that like, there's a there's like a speed limit almost in how fast the government can spend the money, especially for infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, if you're trying to spend it super fast, you wind up either hitting the cycle at the wrong time or um, just like kind of wasting some of the money because you're, you're both, you're trying to get it out the door, but you're also trying to do worthwhile investments and they're kind of at odds. With yeah, exactly. It's always going to be easier to like hit one target than it is to hit two, right? So trying to do stimulus at the same time as you're trying to make productive investments is always going to be harder than just doing the productive investment piece of things. About the WAP being, you know, again, sort of a dual mandate program, right? On the one hand, it's supposed to be a low income program. On the other hand, it's supposed to be an energy efficiency program. And so when the first wave of studies kind of came out saying, hey, look, the WAP isn't delivering on its goals, a common response was, yeah, well, it doesn't really need to do that much on the energy savings front because it's also helping low-income households. And I think that's worth just talking about for a second because I think that actually ends up really shortchanging those low-income households, right? If I told you, hey, I'm going to upgrade your uh, air conditioning unit and you should be spending half as much to cool your house and you actually end up spending you know, 90% of what you were spending before, that's particularly important for a low-income household who's potentially struggling to pay their electricity bill. So just because a program is intended to be, you know, helping uh, low-income Americans, like, I think that's all the more reason to make sure that program is really delivering on its promises rather than less. And I was actually going to ask a kind of related question to that, which was like, when we look at the cost-benefit analysis failing significantly, um, if these measures aren't as effective as we think, who, who winds up paying that cost? I mean, is that mostly kind of borne by the by the by the government just for investing in these programs, um, or do homeowners or you know potential beneficiaries of the WAP, um, you know, wind up bearing some of those costs if the if the measures just aren't that effective? Yeah. Yeah, so I'd say it's a little bit of everyone, right? On the one hand, it's the government who's paying to install these measures in the first place. On the second, it's the rest of us because, you know, one of the benefits that was supposed to come out of this was 
reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, reduce local particulate emissions, like all the stuff that's bad that's associated with electricity generation. Part of the reason that energy efficiency is supposed to be so good is it reduces those things. Well, if those reductions aren't as big as we think, then the person who's living next to the coal-fired power plant also is in trouble. Um, but the third set of people here, I think, that uh, face significant costs from these upgrades are actually the homeowners themselves, right? Because what does the um, process of the WAP look like? Basically, someone comes to your house and says, hey, the government is... Um, willing to install free energy efficiency house uh, upgrades in your house. That sounds great. It's free. But we have to remember that that actually comes with a lot of costs, right? You have to be home for a week as the contractors are in doing their work. You have to file a bunch of paperwork. You have to actually do a lot of things in order to get to the point where that energy efficiency upgrade is installed and completed. And if those upgrades aren't uh, actually delivering on their promises, then you've endured a bunch of inconvenience uh, for something that's sort of not as good as, as it should have been. I know that this gets like kind of in the weeds when we start talking about, you know, realized savings and expected savings, but it is, you know, one of the flagship climate policies of the U.S. government. And so um, trying to make sure that we're getting all of the bang for our spending, I think, is is super important here. All right. Thank you so much. This was really interesting. And thank you so much uh, for your time. And, and I'm looking forward to reading more about these programs in the future. Thanks. Thanks for joining. Great. Us. Thanks so much for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to this podcast and also thanks for listening to the whole series. I've had a great time doing it and I'm really grateful to the University of Chicago for welcoming me as a journalism fellow. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts. To read more about the policy recommendations in EPIC's roadmap, please visit epic.uchicago.edu. Thanks again.